charge of Haiti? The government of this country of 11 million people is in chaos following the assassination of President Jovenel Moise in the early morning hours of July 7th. Haiti's acting head of state is being challenged. The government is almost vacant because elections have not taken place and many unanswered questions remain about the assassination investigation. Where do we stand? Good evening and welcome to the program on this gray day in Dallas. Thanks for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program this evening was designed to offer quick analysis and context on the breaking news out of Haiti. And we are thrilled to have with us Paula Caldwell St. Ange, who served as the Canadian ambassador to Haiti from 2014 to 2017. Council President Emeritus Jim Falk joined Paula to break this down for us. We're always happy to partner across the council community. And tonight I'd like to thank President Charles Shapiro and his team over at the World Affairs Council of Atlanta for their promotional support. It's great to have you with us. And the council will continue to offer top tier virtual programming through summer and into the fall. So continue to check, check out our website at dfwworld.org for newly scheduled events. Tonight, we have our council president, Emeritus Jim Falk, as mentioned. Jim is also the co-host of the McQuiston program on KERA, and we thank him for joining us tonight. And with that, Jim, take it away. Thanks a lot, Liz. And what fun to be with everyone today, even if this is a, a, a tough topic. But I am so delighted to introduce Ambassador Paula Caldwell. That'll be the last time I call her ambassador because she is a close friend of so many of you that are on this program. She was, is a distinguished diplomat, once a diplomat, always a diplomat. And what you might not know is that a few years ago, she even rode with me in the hotter than hell, that 100 kilometer ride in Wichita Falls, Texas. Paula was the Consul General from Canada to the South Central United States from uh, 2010 to 2014. She covered, of course, Texas, but also Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, New Mexico. But we're here tonight to talk about Haiti. And she left Dallas to become the ambassador to Haiti from 2014 to 2017, but it wasn't her first time there. She lived in Haiti from 1978 to 1982, in fact, graduated from the American School of Haiti she speaks Creole, not a lot of um, diplomats do. But I want to tell you a little bit more about not Paula, but her dad, Alan. Alan came, uh, often visited in Dallas, and that was her secret weapon. He read uh, uh, opinion pieces, newspapers, books, highlighted them for her so that when she came home from a long day, she had extra work. But also, Alan provided information to me at the World Affairs Council, and he'd say, Jim, you have to read this book and have that speaker. So he passed away a few years ago, and we miss him greatly. After Paula left Haiti, she became Director General for Pan-African Affairs, and she's also served uh, throughout her long career as Senior Trade Commissioner in Brazil and Minister Counselor of Trade in Mexico. So Paula, you were the first person we thought of when the story broke in Haiti with the assassination of the president. You and I talked a few days ago about what might be the approach, and when I did a bit of reading, I realized just how little I knew about Haiti and thought we might start with asking you to speak for a few minutes to set the country into context for us. Paula, welcome. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Nice to see you again. And uh, and hopefully I can't see any of, of my other friends online, but uh, thank you for being there. And Liz, the World Affairs Council, thank you for having me and, and for thinking of me. Um, I, I do want to start by offering my condolences to the Haitian people. They do not deserve more chaos and violence. And we're all presently watching everything on a tightrope. So, you know, as we further our discussions, I just wanted to give a thought uh, to the Haitian people. To put a bit into context, uh, Haiti is a very, very complex country. It, 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 a very small little history lesson to put it in the historical context, because Haiti's present is very much linked and it's a product of its history. You know, Haiti declared itself independent from France in 1804. It was the first black independent republic. Of course, this is a profound challenge and a threat to fundamental order and economics of the day. It was still dominated by slavery and colonialism. Um, Saint-Domingue, as it was known, was very important uh, to France. 60% of the world coffee would you know, go to Europe from, from Haiti, all the sugar. Anyway, it, it just it was very, very difficult for um, France to actually recognize uh, Haiti. And they did not recognize Haiti as an independent country for another two decades. Uh, the USA actually did not uh, recognize the Haiti either uh, until 1862, of course, after the secession of the southern slave states. I mean, it was all very tied uh, to that. Um, so this is very deep rooted and, and deep seated. Um, we then went through a period of once France recognized it, most of you know, uh, the French made uh, uh, Haiti repay its debt to them of uh, the sugar and plantations that they had lost. Uh, this imposed a debt, but just to put it mildly, it's about $3 billion today. And Haiti paid it through taking loans with French banks, included interest. So by 1914, 80% of, of Haiti's you know, economy was going to service as debt and then not to, to France, but the US by this time uh, was in there. And the US of course then came in um, in 1915, Woodrow Wilson uh, uh, brought in the Marines uh, because of the assassination of uh, Guillaume Sam, or at least that was under the guise of following the assassination of Guillaume Sam. Um, so the conflicts uh, uh, arose right away, and the Marines in the U.S. stayed in, in Haiti from 1915 to 1934. Um, the student uprisings started around 1929, but there was two things that happened there. Uh, the Americans changed the constitution for foreigners to be able to own land, and that was for the sugarcane uh, plantations and companies to come in. And of course, they started, started to round up the men um, as labor. Uh, there's a very deep-seated feeling, and still today, uh, the Haitian population, they're agronomists, they want their plot of land, and, and they, you know, they, they just need that land, and they don't want to be part of a bigger uh, agglomeration, which sees that whole dynamic um, that occurs in Haiti, that not just wasn't it recognized, it also didn't ever realize his dreams of, of independence because of the difference in, in opinion of the people who ran the country of where they should be going and where they are. Um, I'll, I'll really jump ahead. Um, there was a, a 10 years of what they referred to as golden years from about 46 to 56 under two uh, prime ministers, Estimé and Magloire, but, uh, but that was a short lived, 10 years is short lived when uh, the Duvalier era came in. So Papa Doc came in 
um, and he very skillfully uh, was backed by the U.S. because it was 1959 and there was a Cuban revolution and Papadoc very cleverly uh, set himself up as, um, as an anti-communist uh, um, president. Of course, he changed the constitution, became president for life, but, but he still uh, uh, very much inspired, uh, you know, Haiti as an anti-communist versus Cuba that, uh, in the 1959 Cuban revolution. So that, that helped um, the US not, if you will, jump in, uh, in when the dictatorship became more and more brutal. And of course, in 1970, baby doc uh, uh, took over. Now, um, after that, we had a series of transitions, and, and, uh, and, and this is when it becomes maybe more current for a lot of you. Uh, you will hear about the transitional governments, the, uh, the famous 1987 constitution, which actually later you'll hear is at the root of many um, of the differences and, and how we cannot move forward in Haiti. But then we had uh, Aristide um, in 1990. Remember, he was deposed by military, and then Bill Clinton uh, brought him back uh, through Operation Uphold Democracy, and then there was René Préval. He was the René Préval was the first electedly democratic president, or second, sorry, electedly democratic president after Aristide, but that finished his term without being ousted and passed on the mantle, if you will, through a normal democratic election. So it wasn't wasn't too long ago um, in 2001 when you know the, this transfer of power occurred. Uh, for the first time in, in Haiti. Then, of course, Aristide came back. There was a coup d'etat. Um, there was interim government for two years. And finally, since 2006, things were going well for Haiti. René Préval came back. He was doing the consultation that is needed and a privatization of government companies, agrarian reform, etc. And 2010, uh, the earthquake in Haiti. So uh, things were looking up and, and, uh, and of course, all of you do know about the earthquake in Haiti, so I won't belabor that and, uh, um, and, and I'll stop there, but that's really a context and that whole historical background that is still there today. But regarding the earthquake, 200,000 people died, a million people were displaced. I mean, it was just oh, horrendous. And I was thinking about percentages of what that would mean in the United States last night. And, you know, it's awfully hard to re recover from something like that. It is, and, and that was our humanitarian aid that, that, that came in, and, and it was, you know, just Canada was $4 million a day at one point. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we, um, we really stepped in, and, and we did a lot uh, with during the earthquake. Humanitarian aid went into the infrastructure of the country, oh, which is really needed. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, and I'm sure the United States and Canada may have different interests in Haiti, and I, I hope you'll point those out, but about 27 years ago, President Biden, then Senator Biden, famously said, if Haiti, a god-awful thing to say, if Haiti just quietly sunk into the Caribbean or rose up 300 feet, it wouldn't matter a whole lot in terms of our national interest. Paula, what are our interests? Why do we care about Haiti? Well, Haiti, the Caribbean, Latin America, we're all in the same neighborhood. We very much um, you know, care about stability, rule of law, democracy. I mean, these are the staples of our democracies, both Canada and the United States and, uh, and the European Union that of course we work with in, in Haiti and, and elsewhere. But, but in the Americas, you know, we really do um, want to focus on having rule of law and, and democracy. And I think it's very, very important that Haiti, that we uphold Haiti, um, there are brothers and sisters. I mean, there is obviously that 
that non-altruistic side, if you will, um, that we saw, unfortunately, when desperate people uh, have no food, they do desperate things, you know, and, and we do, and we're seeing it now in the Mediterranean. You, you're having boat people, you remember the whole expression, it was the front page of the Time magazine in the 80s, so, you know, we don't want to find ourselves there, and also because we do believe in, in the rule of law and also in humanitarian um, assistance. In 35%, I mean, let's just put things in perspective right now, 35% of Haitians are, are suffering acute, acute hunger. It's considered one of the poorest countries in the world. Talk about as well the diaspora. There's 1.2 million Haitians or people of Haitian heritage in the United States. And how many make up the Canadian diaspora? Yeah, we have 168,000 you know, Haitians, mostly in Montreal. And mostly it was um, the diaspora that left during uh, uh, Papa Dot's rule at the end of the 50s. Um, a lot of our doctors, lawyers, uh, instrumental Saint Justine, uh, and, and they go back uh, to Haiti, obviously, um, to help out. Diaspora is extremely important. A third of the national budget in Haiti uh, comes from the diaspora. So, so it's very critical to their to their well-being. Um, well, a bit like like we're seeing in Cuba, quite frankly. And when you when you let, let's let's go forward for a minute. And if you if I'd asked you two months ago to describe the president, President Moise, how would you have described him? And how how well did you know him? Well, um, I actually was uh, was was part of the what they call the core group, and I was the ambassador there when we had the transition of power between uh, Martelli. So I was there most of the years with Martelli. The last year, of course, transitioning uh, to Jovenel Moïse presidency. So I got introduced to Jovenel Moïse. Uh, that is uh, that's President Martelli with his wife Sophia, who I went to high school with actually. So um, and. The transition of power um, occurred very smoothly. Uh, President Martelli handpicked Jovenel Moise. He brought him to the Canadian uh, official residence and, and to the embassy to introduce him, like he did to with the, all the other ambassadors, to introduce this new figure uh, in his party, Peashtika. Um, he was uh, he, he, he was an unassuming uh, uh, agricultural man. I mean, he was known as Banana Man. Um, because he got later on, of course, there was allegations. Yeah, he had uh, he had this industry called Agritrans, and that he was going to be the first major exporter of bananas. Uh, later on, it came out that it was a very nice and big lucrative contract, but not many bananas were found, and not much export after that. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. Um, unfortunately, under the cloud of him being uh, anointed president, the whole Petro Caribe scandal, 
um, blew up the. Um, tell tell people what that is associated with Venezuela, but. Yes, absolutely. Sorry. So the Petro Caribe scandal is uh, is four billion dollars basically of subsidized uh, gasoline that Venezuela um, has been has given to Haiti. You know, for you know, and, and I don't quite remember how many years, Jim. It's was it five or six, but it's it is a large amount of money. And what the what the Cour de Cassation, what the courts found, um, was it two billion? Half of it was missing. Um, so. So this whole subsidy of gasoline became a real issue because of course, without the subsidies, he would have to increase gas prices, which so soon after he became president, the riots began. I mean, Martelli and Preval before him, they tried to increase the price of gas because they needed to, to pay off, to pay off some of their debts, but they couldn't. Their local population will rise when, when something that that's their basic mode of transportation is little scoot scooters, et cetera. So, so he didn't start out well, and he was not um, uh, literate. Uh, he wasn't a, a great speaker. And also in the last, since he started ruling by decree, um, he became very worrisome. He started ruling by decree, and but we'll discuss that perhaps later in, in January of last year, um, which means he became more and more autocratic. And, and of course, <laughs> in Haiti were very suspicious of autocratic, you know, regimes and people who become more and more autocratic. So he started, he, he did, he did some bizarre things in, at the end. Uh, he was, um, he instituted his own intelligence army, in, which is very reminiscent of Papadoc. So that was very scary. He, um, he went off on a tangent and well, went off on a tangent. We don't know why he went to Morocco and all of a sudden recognized Morocco and a consulate in the Western Sahara. As you know, the United Nations, the US and Canada do not recognize the Western Sahara. Um, Haiti is the only country in the world left actually that recognizes, it could be one other, that recognizes Taiwan um, and you know, and not just China. So so on, he was, he was doing things that, that just seemed um, a bit erratic and all to consolidate power. That is what was coming out of the um, Haitian media, uh, the Haitian press and, and the friends. Well, we won't go into it now, but you know, United States certainly changed its position on the Abraham Accords regarding the Western Sahara and Morocco. But that would be a, a, another good program for us to talk about. Let's talk about the Constitution, because you told me a few days ago that Haiti's Constitution uh, adopted the worst parts of the U.S. and the French constitutions. Uh, so. So why, why doesn't it work? Why? And, and your counterpart in Haiti, Ambassador Morin, said that we never, um, the United States or no one did anything to address the underlying weaknesses institutionally and democratically over the past several years. So we should not be surprised that the lid blew off again. Why hasn't Haiti been able to establish meaningful, long established institutions in a civil society? Yeah. Let's go to your constitution first, and 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 Peter, um, I served with Peter Mulraine as well as Ambassador Pam White. Uh, so those were the two American ambassadors while while I was there. Um, it is very. Like, I'll just pick one thing in the constitution. It's a constitution. When I when I said that to you, um, it was because there's so many elections in that constitution. They have to elect a president directly. 
um, the president then with the consent of parliament, you know, appoints a prime minister and ministers, etc. But then there's elections for for mayors, uh, what you call Kazakhs, and uh, and bottom line is Haiti doesn't have the money to have a, to have an election every two years, like for senators, for deputies, for the presidential elections. That that's an awful lot of um, of elections, and so so right there you will you will fall into that pattern of of uh, not having a governing body not have not having elections that will not institute new senators this is what happened that's what that is why he could rule by decree we were in a similar situation when peter Mulrine was there actually um in that in that martelli could have also not held elections and there's to be simple i'll just talk about the senate there's a whole deputies as well but the senators there's 30 senators and you need to have 20 to have quorum, to have, to have a, a legislature that can then counter the balance of the executive of the president. Well, and, and 10 get elected every two years. Okay, that was just to set up the context. So, so there was all of a sudden, you only have 10 senators left. You only have 10 actually elected um, officials in the entire country today. And that's because they allowed them to go through. Martelli, what happened with him was he prolonged the, by a, by a year, 10 other senators so he would still have a senate so he could not rule by decree and and that was you know i think all of us you're working together but the the haitians really seeing that they were at an abyss unfortunately this time um the, the abyss was there again but there, there was no elections held so so i'll i'll do i'll, I'll stop there with the constitution paula Paul, just quickly define because i know we have some students on on the line when you say governed by decree what do you mean it means that there is no checks and balances. It means that there is no parliament uh, to approve or not approve uh, him appointing a, a prime minister. It means that he just uh, he just appointed to have the elections and to have a referendum on the constitution. He appointed everyone directly himself. He did not follow what the constitution says is that you have to consult the sectors of civil society, of academia, of, of the associations, um, business, uh, in order to put together a credible uh, council. It, it's called the CEP, le, le Conseil Electoral Provisoire. So it's the, the Electoral Council. So even the one that's there today in place was just appointed by him, so because by decree. So it, it's, you're a dictator. You can just, anything you put out, you just tell the people that this is what you're doing. There is no checks and balances. It won't surprise you that our mutual friend Ray Termody has a question. And he asks, why has Haiti had such difficulty developing? You've touched on some of that, but would you elaborate? Um, I think it's, it's, it's a question of, um, well, I talked about the political dysfunction, so there's never a, a proper governance, and that's uh, due to the Constitution uh, in, in a lot. But it's also because of the weak institutions. Um, Haiti has never developed strong enough institutions, a strong enough judiciary. Um, another of Jovenel, President Moise's uh, actions was he just fired three of the Supreme Court judges, you know, uh, a little while ago this year. Um, so so without without proper institutions, you will never be able to have good governance. So I think this is where the Haitian people um, in Ray, the Haitian people have to get together and it's, it has to be a Haitian solution. But the different sectors of, of Haiti 
uh, there, I know that there's some that are now trying, you know, we're working together, uh, trying to, to, to see what the path forward will be. Um, and they need to strengthen their institutions. And that's where maybe then the international community, you know, let's look at the Haitian priorities and see where we can support them. Let's talk about gangs, because that plays such a big role in, in Haiti's Haiti situation now. Mm. Gangs. So um, there was always gangs um, and in the Cité de Soleil, in, in, in the Jalousie, um, that neighborhood you may have seen was next to the, the president's house. Um, but they were always controlled as long as Minusta was there. Uh, I remember talking to General uh, Jaboranji, who was a Brazilian general. It was Brazilian troops that were in charge of the Minusta, um, the, the last Minusta contingent that, uh, as, as you may know, the UN uh, left in 2017. But he would tell me, you know, the arms, um, the arms are still coming in. And unfortunately, what it is, it, it's, it's um, how do you say, it's a bit of a perfect storm. I mean, it's in the interest of the gangs and the drug lords to keep Haiti in a chaotic, unstable environment, because that way they can come in with the drugs from South America, uh, mostly, and uh, with without with impunity. You know, they what drugs and where are they coming from in South America? Yeah, well, um, so I'm not an expert in this. I mean, you have your DEA who's very involved uh, uh, with with others uh, from from my RCMP, etc. But it's um. Uh, it's cocaine and it's marijuana when I was there. I'm sure there's there's other drugs, but heroin was also uh, an up and coming one um, when we were there from and from Colombia and Venezuela. Um, I mean, there's the, the drug uh, trafficking routes are, are, are quite complex and, and I don't I don't know them all, uh, but that's that's grosso modo where they come from and they could easily, you know, come into Haiti. When I was there, they, they, um, they actually caught, a, a, there's lots of little, uh, airplane strips, you know, that are dirt airplane strips that uh, sure. I know the Americans are helping the, the Haitian government discover them and, you know, uh, destroy them. But one of the planes that they did catch, you know, had uh, the Venezuelan president Maduro at the time's uh, family member in that plane, you know, and, and so, so there was a, a direct connection. Um, the other the other direct connection is um, with uh, there was a senator. He was going to be a, a sitting senator, Guy Philippe. And the DEA did come into Haiti while I was there, and they had one week where they did not have immunity. You, you have immunity in, in Haiti if you are a sitting member of parliament, and also while you run to be a sitting member of parliament. Um, but uh, DEA did come in and pick up one of the potential, you know, to be senators, because uh, he was very much uh, associated with with the drug um, drug cartels. So I think they're they're intimately involved. We have a question from Facebook Live and uh, Diana Birdwell, and she asks, how accurate and applicable is Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, in, where he compares Haiti and, and Dominican Republic? And I remember a number of years ago being on a, in, in the Caribbean and just looking out and seeing dramatic difference between the two countries. Yeah. Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I, I know Jared's books, but I haven't read that book. Um, so, so I, but why I, the difference in development? Comment on it. Well, the you know, I mean, it, it, they came as I as I started with the context, the historical context. The plantations started to actually devastate the forest. All of that hardwood forest got cut down, was being sent to Europe. Plantations need sugarcane and coffee 
uh, but sugarcane especially needs a lot of uh, land area. Um, yeah, and this is a very bleak and stark uh, <laughs> a picture. They, they also, on the Dominican side, uh, they had uh, obvious, a bloody dictator, actually, that, that, uh, that was a Haitian massacre with that bloody dictator in place called Trujillo, dictator Trujillo. But Trujillo, since he was a dictator, uh, he wanted some forests and the forests intact. So uh, he actually set up the national park system. There's five national parks uh, in Dominican Republic. Um, so, so, so right there, the contrast, the historical contrast of the protection uh, of the land, uh, you know, is quite is quite stark. And then we don't forget that the the population, the demographics. I mean, uh, there's no real census that has been done in the last few years, but everybody talks about there being between 11 and 12 million people in Haiti, and um, and on the other side of the island. Dominican Republic has three quarters of the island, and as you see, more fertile, and they don't have as many people. So, so, so there, there's an unbalance, uh, there's a definite unbalance. Well, this may be an unfair question because new information comes out every, every day, but I suspect you've been talking with some of your colleagues and friends. What do you think was behind the assassination? And I mean, it seems so, ragtag. I mean, it just is a very strange situation where many of the perhaps Colombian mercenaries didn't even know what the operation they had signed onto was was about. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's uh, <laughs> my friends in Haiti, as, as, as we know, there's so many uh, stories and, and rumors and with the social media these days, I mean, circulating what happened, what didn't happen. I mean, there are obviously some some facts, you know, that we can say we we now know because they've been corroborated by both uh, the Haitian government, the Colombian government, and the FBI that is on the ground to help. Um, it is very good uh, for for Haiti to have the technical uh, support and expertise of, of others. Um, it it is a very odd situation. It's very odd that professional mercenaries would not have an exit plan. I mean, that comes to everyone's mind. Um, on the other hand. Uh, was there, was it hubris? Did, did they really think that the Haitian National Police wasn't that well organized? The Haitian National Police, and there's some very good people and officers in that police, they've only really been, if you will, trained and and, uh, and it's, it's the US and Canada actually through our development programs um, that have uh, that have helped to train the Haitian National Police. So, I mean, they're, they're not quite there yet uh, uh, when, um, when I left, I know, and when Minusta left, right? Minusta also supported a lot of them. So, so perhaps they underrated, you know, the the efficacy, the efficiency um, of the police. Maybe they also thought that the president, as we as we now uh, uh, have heard, uh, as many many of you have seen, right? That Martin Moise is back. Um, those are the Colombian. Yeah. Um, detainees. Um, and many of you have heard Martin Moise is now back uh, in Haiti. Um, and uh, and so she has her her account and, and she was there. Uh, so they are, you know, they're they're taking that seriously and that they that they were there. They did not know who the president was. They were apparently were talking on the phone um, to make sure they could identify him. Um, let me, let me ask you a question about her because I, I really don't know anything, but we have seen sometimes spouses take the position of their of their spouse. Does she have any political legitimacy? Um, 
I'm not there on the ground, but I have not heard that. The, the, the first uh, little flare I heard of that suggestion that she might be interested um, is that she came back so quickly, you know, uh, but she may have her own reasons for that. She never, uh, we, we never saw her be uh, up front. She was always, you know, behind her man. But then again, so was Simone uh, Duvalier with Papa Doc. So, so we don't, um, we, we, we don't know. Uh, but I just wish that she, uh, I wish her the best and that she recovers and that her two children, um, you know, they're back home with the family. So I think that's very important and probably a, a very good reason for her to be there too. So tell us what happened today. And Claude Joseph yesterday looked like he was going to be yeah. president interim and now we have Ariel, uh, Henry, Henri. Or... Ariel Henri, yes, a neurosurgeon. Um, I, I, I've, I've met him. Uh, very, very uh, smart, uh, skilled man. Um, this was a bit, it, it, it was a bit uh, odd, of course, because uh, as, as uh, you may know, uh, Jovenel Moïse had base, had fired uh, uh, Claude Joseph and he had um, was going to install Ariel Henry um, the day he died. Uh, and uh, then, of course, they have to, because he doesn't have a parliament, usually parliament, this is where it becomes all nebulous. Parliament, um, approves the, the, the prime minister's selection of the president. But since there was no parliament, Jovenel Moïse has been appointing prime ministers, you know, as he wants. And his prime ministers haven't lasted long. They they keep revolving. As soon as something goes wrong, he just um, appoints another prime minister, you know, as opposed to dealing with, with some of the issues of, of why the prime minister, you know, couldn't deal with X or Y. So, so he, um, he had put... Um, Jovenel Moïse out, uh, the, the uh, core group, which is Canada, the US, the European Union. Uh, we're chaired by uh, um, the UN uh, Secretary General uh, in Haiti, um, put, out a, put out a core group statement that, uh, that said that they were going to be now working with the uh, Prime Minister par interim, uh, Ariel Henry. Um, and therefore, uh, this morning, without that international support, uh, the, the uh, Prime Minister Claude Joseph, uh, and they're all going to be par interim means um, acting. They're all going to be acting prime ministers because there's no parliament. So this is Claude Joseph um, that has just stepped down, just announced he was stepping down. He did, by the way, act very well um, uh, right after the assassination. He, you know, he didn't hide anywhere. He he called the session of ministers. He came out to the press. He called the national police. He had regular, and, and, and I watch his, uh, his regular press uh, conferences where he would tell the population what was going on. So in terms of communication, I think he did a good job to stabilize uh, the country from, from immediate chaos. There is no chaos. I mean, it's actually quite quiet uh, from, from what I've heard. Um, and then uh, we just move on. Oh, and he will be named. Uh, he used to be foreign affairs minister. So Ariel Henry will keep him in his ministerial cabinet. Um, as Minister of Foreign Affairs. So this is, uh, this is as far as we know, the latest a uh, few hours ago. Right, and it may be different tomorrow. Let me bring in Ambassador Charles Shapiro, who is the president of the World Affairs Council in Atlanta. And his question is, what, what should the uh, democratic community in general, and Canada and the US in particular, do over the next three months? Um, I think what we have to do is, um, help Haitians uh, sit down and have a dialogue. Uh, this is kind of like looking to the future, if you will. 
kind of question and and, and it's it's a it's very complex but the first thing we have to do is really have um there has to be a dialogue with with all the actors with all the haitian actors for a, a solution a path forward that's as i said the civil society associations academia the political parties because they're always divided um and and also the polit a political party uh, for you to have an awareness when we have presidential elections the slate of presidential candidates it, they're over 50 pictures on on that slate now, because, are they different political parties or yes yes because i think you have to be 10 people to have a political party so you know many people have aspirations so so you know perhaps a, perhaps a dialogue on having fewer uh, political parties which means that people have to work together and and what is our role that's a good question you know the international community um, I think has to let uh, the, the Haitians prioritize and have a path forward, but we can definitely um, and should ease the, we can ease the conversation. We can help players that maybe perhaps um, are hard, that they don't want to talk to each other, facilitate that. It's happened before in the past with the OAS. CARICOM played a very interesting and, and solid role in Guyana, you know, so so maybe you know let's let's look at the caricom so those are the the interventions if you will of, of outside actors but um really is is to just figure out that the, the haitians have to figure out who is the government what do we need and ease that conversation and then move forward and and move forward to have credible elections because at, at the end of the day um at, you will need credible elections to have a a, a functioning government which will then and we can talk about the institutions. Uh, you think there's any chance that the elections will take place as previously scheduled in September? Oh, it's impossible. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, it's it's impossible. There's a, as you know the the as I said the, the electoral council that has been even appointed isn't agreed to. It's it's unconstitutional. So you know the first thing perhaps if, in part of the dialogue they should say is to appoint a. Um, a respected uh, electoral council. It, without that, elections will 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 bring any result. It will bring will not will will have no legitimacy whatsoever. So uh, so I I really don't think uh, September is on. Um, if people work very 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 hard, you know maybe the end of the year, beginning of 2022. I mean we really need to uh, you know be there and, and, and help them out because of course there's a whole financial and technical assistance uh for for elections that we can we can help uh in and um and don't forget the constitutional reform <laughs> that i mentioned at the very beginning right so i'm holding an article that ambassador jim stavridius wrote for bloomberg last week and the headline is ending chaos in haiti is not a job for u.s troops uh, President Biden, at least thus far, has been emphatic, saying that troops are not going. He'll send humanitarian, some humanitarian assistance and mm -hmm. advisors on civil society. Uh, and yet there are still calls in some of the U.S. media and some Haitians for the United States to send troops. What are your thoughts? I don't think troops will fix anything. Um, you know, we have seen the, the the last well since 2004. You know, we've had UN missions, uh, uh, bilateral, bilateral, multilateral. I mean, we've tried uh, we've tried to do a lot of things, but the, it won't fix the real issue. And the real issue is governance issues, and that's where Haitians have to come together um, and decide how they want to govern their country, who's going to govern it, um, have the 
you know the the proper players uh, in place and then we can we can definitely we can continue to help for example reinforcement of the uh, Haitian national police for security the security is the cornerstone um you know of of having you know free and fair elections in a way people need to be safe to go and have an election so all of that um they're, they're all kind of cogs in the wheel of, of where we go but but foreign troops going in will will not fix anything that is that is not the fundamental issue and the un troops were there for how long they left in 2017 under not a very good cloud of of success but tell us about their role well you know it did and it depends the articles you read so overall you know the the impact if you will is uh, is min well is minimal and it's minimal because you look at it today what happens is that we the gains that they did make uh i.e they stopped a lot of those arms they stopped the gangs the the little marchands in the cité du soleil and in the poor neighborhoods they felt safe you know and they told um the the un troops the brazilian troops and and uh and they were backed by the uh, uh as i said it was a brazilian general it was a chilean number two and it's always a canadian uh number three um because we have we have definite expertise on on logistics on helping out so yes we had an impact it's just that it's it doesn't stay it's not it's short-lived once once we leave and the biggest impact the un had which is why the reputation and and the we don't you know the haitians didn't want them back is cholera it's quite frankly cholera uh that that was brought uh, for those of you who don't know uh, the Nepalese troops up north, uh, unfortunately, one of them did have cholera and, and, and you're in a country with poor sanitation, so it spread quite quickly. And of course, with the malnutrition and, and the general health of people and the sanitation, um, it was quite devastating uh, to Haiti. And uh, so so that all of that it just tars, you know, uh, the UN with, with a bad brush, but they, they did do some good. It's just not long lasting. I want you to comment on foreign assistance because Haiti has received so much aid, private and public, over decades, and some of it has been probably lined politicians' pockets. Um, right now, or rather after the earthquake, uh, Haiti received $10 million in billion in donations which represent 150% of its GDP. And it strikes me that it's a little bit like when we think about Afghanistan, that we've put in so much assistance, so many dollars, billions of dollars, that it makes it very hard for the country to become self-sustaining and develop its own budget. That's a different context. Well, first, I think Afghanistan is in the trillions, but um, <laughs> the, 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 the billions in, in the context of the earthquake in Haiti, it really was humanitarian assistance. But even beyond the earthquake, like now, I mean, you're seeing so much. Well, and, and, and now it's kind of, yeah, the development assistance, but but to the large amounts of the of the humanitarian assistance, I think uh, uh, did did help the country a lot. A lot of the infrastructure had to be rebuilt. And uh, when you talk infrastructure, you talk larger amounts of money. I think development aid, and, and this is where there, there is that debate. It, it does, and some people have said, well, we still do need it. You can't abandon the poorest of the poor people. Some people will, will refer to it because there's collateral good in, in giving a, a developmental aid, which is one way to look at it. Um, but a lot of the aid uh, we give, as I said, is um, what we have to do is more coordination. I think there's a lack of coordination 
uh, with our aid and we have to look at the, the Haitian priorities uh, in order to, to, and then the international community has to coordinate their aid. We had started to do that, um, well, after the earthquake set event, but when I was there, actually I was, I was chair of, of a round table of ambassadors in order to start talking uh, for the Haitian government does have an aid coordination unit. It's just that they weren't very effective. So we talked about, and we go back to that institutional institution building. So some of the aid in the development dollars could have gone to do better institutional building. So we could have had a better capacity for coordination. Um, and therefore you would have had a larger impact for development dollars, but, but there is an impact. I, I think, um, I decry anybody who says there hasn't been an impact because we have, you know, increased uh, uh, the health, the education. Um, well, the PNH, the Haitian National Police, is, is a good example of governance, you know, uh, even though not much money goes into the governance side of things. And maybe this is where Haiti would have liked us to prioritize a bit more of our development dollars in order to help them build an institution and, and get more security in the country. So, so it, it, all, it all flows together. Um, and I don't think, like, I don't think troops would help. It won't fix anything. I don't think cutting development aid uh, fixes anything. And, and let me just go to a private, to the private uh, aid. Mm -hmm. There is a, there's some very good uh, uh, private donation NGOs. And, and, and I, and I want to mention, well, there's, there's one actually from, from Texas. Of course, there's the, um, was it the, the one drop? And I haven't talked to Jack in, in ages, but uh, I knew he was doing work in Haiti. But the other one is, for example, the Small Farmers Holders Alliance. Um, they're doing phenomenally well. And the communities, and this goes back to the history and the past of, of, of Haitians, the communities themselves organize very, very well. Um, the Small Farmers Holders Alliance, um, I just got in the mail from Timberland, the first pair of sneakers made out of uh, Haitian cotton because they have restarted cotton production. And moringa is another, you know, production. So, so there are some pockets, and and this uh, this quite frankly is 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 not is supported. I, USAID does put in some support, and I don't think uh, I think all the rest is private. Um, and it is working. So you have that success story. I just want to leave with a good positive note. Sure. There is that success story occurring in Haiti today. Yeah, it's a success story, but still four fifths of the population live in poverty. So we have to duplicate that. You see, this is a small microcosm uh, of what could happen with agrarian reform, with with uh, with people having proper land titles. So you've touched on this, but let me let me reframe it um, in the words of one of our, a member of our audience, Tarek Rajev. What would be the most promising path for Haitians to achieve stability? You've you've t touched on institutions, but give us two or three of the top priorities. Constitutional reform um, would be at the top. Um, an honest uh, dialogue among all actors uh, in society, uh, and they could call upon us or not uh, for help. And uh, elections, and then once you have uh, you have those things in place, you can uh, shore up institutions, um, and then we will you know we will have a nascent uh, functioning democracy and country. I want to be sure I get in as many questions as possible. We have another one from Facebook from Diane again. You've touched on the police, but Diane asked, how stable is the military? And I'll add, what, what is its role? So, so the military got abolished um, 
after after baby doc and and, and with Aristide and, and in in that time area and and uh, uh, Michelle Martelli President Martelli um, as as one of his promises uh, as a, in, in the PHTK party um, he um, he promised to bring back the military there there is there is a, a many people there that remember the Duvalier years um, as stability security and and many believe that maybe it's because there was an, an army. So they wanted to reconstitute an army. Um, at that time, and I, and I don't know the position of, um, of governments today, because as you know, I'm, I'm retired. Um, but at that time, uh, the United States and Canada and, and the core group did not support uh, Haiti putting money in to recreate a military when they don't have enough money to even pay their Haitian national police. Uh, that's something I want to add that that should be top 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 of the the list is uh, pay the pay the police the Haitian national police regularly uh, so they will become more stable and they won't try and get a second and third job or doing something else. So um, yeah, I, I just <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. What about human rights and press freedom of the press? Yeah, Let's do freedom of the press first. Yeah, so freedom of the press. Uh, uh, again, it was it was we had freedom of the press uh, when I was there. It's the ruling by decree uh, ends up, and and there was a journalist that was killed, and he was actually a dear friend of, of a friend of mine. So it was quite uh, emotional for for many people, um, and it, and it was just recently, and and so there seemed to be. Um, a repression of of the press, but I don't know if it, it wasn't a repression like we've seen in in some other countries. I was about to mention some, but <laughs> I won't. Um, you know, it's not a systematic repression. There, but but they are in danger. They are in danger if uh, people don't like what they're saying, and, and so I think that's very dangerous, and they should be protected. And human rights protection of women and so forth yeah, well, well well human rights is uh, well the protection of women and girls was was one is the cornerstone still of our feminist international policy and our feminist development policy in Canada and uh, and the US as well we very much um, again we, we set up units in the the Haitian National Police just of women police so so they could um, speak to the women and children that are being abused because it, there was a there's a whole obvious history there that you don't you don't trust a man police, you know, you don't uh, male police, you know. So um, so we, we need to be very aware of human rights abuses. There's uh, certain sections of the police that were accused of human rights abuses. You see some of the, well, the, the, the gangs, but they, yeah, they do human rights abuses uh, all the time, but they're not held accountable like an institution. So um, I think we have to be very careful and that is a very good question because i think we should continue if you want to talk about development aid and foreign aid you know in helping uh the haitians with their priorities i think this is where we can continuously mention how important it is and COVID 19 you told me that they received their first vaccines i think you said yesterday is that yeah two three days ago now maybe two days ago but yeah what what happened there was um uh the U.S. was going to send uh, the vaccines like it did in other parts of the world to Haiti as well, and it was the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, and this is my understanding, so I, I, I should have double-checked this with you because this is just my friends writing to me. Um, they um, refused it because the AstraZeneca vaccine, you know, uh, he thought it was just 
dumping of a vaccine that wasn't very good. Uh, he didn't uh, believe it was as good as the Pfizer and Moderna, and so he just refused the, the shipment of, of AstraZeneca vaccine. But it's murky of, uh, apart from the belief, and it was a strong belief by many, uh, obviously, that AstraZeneca didn't work, uh, but it was still, um, it was still a travesty that there was no vaccines uh, before. Moderna, by the way, is the one that came in a couple of days ago. Well, I hope that's a good one. That's the one I had. <laughs> well, I had AstraZeneca, so I think any vaccine is a good vaccine, but we won't go there. <laughs> Paul, I don't want to let you go without taking advantage of your knowledge of not just Haiti, but the Caribbean and particularly Cuba. Um, and, you know, it seems right now that Cuba and South Africa are getting more attention than, than Haiti. Uh, the, the president's inbox is, is quite full. What's happening in Haiti? I mean, in Cuba. Well, you know, I'm I'm not a Cuban expert, um, but what is happening in Cuba? Well, how many how many Cubans do you have in uh, in the United States? You mentioned one million, one point five million Haitians, so I think you have a few more Cubans. Right. So, um, yeah. So the, the they're a very powerful constituency. Uh, listen, I, I all I'm aware of that's happening in, in in Cuba, and we talked about it for Haiti in the beginning on remittances, how important the diaspora are. Um, I know that uh, a few years ago, and it hasn't been reversed with your new administration, Western Union got um, shut down in the United States, and that is the, the, the major conduit, if you will, to send remittances to Cuba. And, um, and the last I heard, um, there was $3 billion uh, of remittances that weren't uh, getting to Cuba, and that, that's huge. Uh, so. So multiply that by all the people on the street is probably is probably who's out there that is no longer getting their um, their family's um, extra income. Which is Cuba is really a country where the U.S. and Canada have very different interests. Yes, we do. Um, let's go back to uh, Haiti again for a minute because um, if the OAS has played a role on again, off again with, with, with Haiti. Is there a role for the OAS and, and how, might, how might it work with the United Nations? Yeah. Uh, definitely, the, the OAS is part of that core group uh, and they're an instrumental part of that core group. Uh, and and I should say the Organization of American States. Not just... Yes, the Organization of American States has a representative in Haiti. Um, they are a part of the core group. You have the OAS, uh, the, the UN is the chair of that group with the US, uh, Canada, OAS, uh, Germany, Brazil, Chile, France, of course. Um, so, so and, and they're instrumental. They're, they're, they're instrumental in that group. They were also instrumental in, in during uh, President Martelli's time. Um, they came and, and spoke to him and brokered, you know, at the 11th hour, a deal that uh, President Martelli would step down mm -hmm. on his uh, departure in February and put in a transition government. Um, as you saw, Jovenel Moïse did not uh, uh, step down and, and accept a transitional government. So, so that was a big difference. And the OAS played a key role. Um, so uh, let's let Ray Termini ask the last question. <laughs> And it'll make you happy because it'll be an upbeat one, I think. Please ask Paula to tell us about a bit about Haitian culture and its influence on the country's development. Mm. Oh, I think uh, Haitian culture um, is uh, well. Actually, behind me, I just know behind me, 
all, all my, my Haitian paintings uh, are everywhere in the house. No paintings from Dallas, huh? <laughs> they're, 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 well, I have, I, I have one in another room. Uh, the skylight of Dallas, Jim, just for you to know. So, um, yeah, it, the, the culture of Haiti is very important because it's it's also rooted uh, in many ways to, to its, its religion, the original religion of voodoo, uh, which is important to the rural community. So we're not talking about the urban Haiti. We're talking also about that the colorful, vibrant colors that they use, um, the dance uh, that they have, the oh, and they, they do beautiful um, jewelry and uh, you know and, and the, the colorful uh, clothing that they wear. Um, so it really it instills it it makes you happy. So so Ray, thank you very much. And I think the Haitian people are a happy people. They're resilient people. I mean the. Um, the chaos that they've gone through and, and, as, and as you have said Jim the poverty um, and they still uh, manage to produce art uh, that is that is just and, and I see Liz and before um, she pops on if if someone wants and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here and maybe you can suggest a website if someone wants to help Haiti where might they go what would you recommend Oh, how about if they contact uh, Liz in the World Affairs Council? Because there's a, um, I mean, there's a lot of NGOs in Texas, and there's also like that Small Farmers Holders Alliance. It's based out of New York. It's not even American. It's, it's American. Um, but uh, yeah, could we um, could we do that through uh, through the World? Well, maybe Affairs you can group? send some suggestions to Liz, and but um, yeah. I'm yeah. not trying to put you on the spot. But we know often when we do programs like this, people will contact and say. What can I do? Yeah, uh, well, there's no problem in contacting me directly either. But if, if you know, instead of like giving my email out to, to the oh, webinar, well, you can do it through uh, the phone call. Yeah, That's yeah, no I problem just at all. Call Liz, and, and she'll have my contact information. Great to be with you, Paula, and back to you, Liz. Thank Thanks. you. Well, thank you both so much. What an excellent discussion. Uh, I, I just thanks. Uh, to you for offering our members such important insight as more information comes to us daily from Haiti. I think these types of programs are really important. Uh, I'd also like to thank again, President Charles Shapiro and his team over at the World Affairs Council of Atlanta for their promotional support. And to catch up on our past programs, head over to our YouTube channel at DFW World. And if you're not a member of the council yet, please join us. We'd love to see you more, and I look forward to meeting you in person soon at our Welcome Back reception on September 9th. Visit dfwworld.org for more in information on membership and programming. And with that, I thank you again for joining us, and have a good evening. Oh,